This is the River Radius, a cultural nexus of rivers, people, and boats. I am your host, Sam Carter. Welcome. If you start fantasizing within the first hour of getting on the water in the morning about what you're going to eat for dinner, it's going to be a really long day on the water. I was traveling, well, on the Mississippi, and all I could think of, you know, being from California, was like, avocados. (laughs) When am I going to get my next avocado? You know, and then there's other times where, you know, in the morning, often you're groggy and you're sore and you paddled really far the day before. And, you know, then you're sleeping in your tent and maybe your pads deflated or whatever (laughs) has happened. And, you know, you're all creaky and stuff. But one of the things I really like about the Source to Seas, too, is almost the endurance aspect of it and settling into your body in a new way. So working with the river and your boat and your paddle in ease, you know, you're paddling and it's you have eight hours to paddle for the day, right? It's kind of like your boat becomes your office. And if you can actually just stay in the present moment of the light on the river, the light in the trees, the wind, the sounds, you know, it's a beautiful meditation. Today's episode comes to you from our contributing host, Samara Rosen. You first heard from Samara this past summer as she and I co-hosted an episode titled Dignity of Risk. And Samara is back here today with this episode about source to sea river trips. Please welcome River Radius contributing host, Samara Rosen. This episode comes to you from a collaboration over a year in the making. I met Danielle Katz in 2021 on the board of an organization called Rivers for Change. Rivers for Change is a nonprofit that promotes holistic river conservation through source to sea expeditions and programming that connects people to their watersheds. Typically, a source-to-sea expedition follows a river from its headwaters, also known as its source, all the way to the ocean. While source-to-seas can have many purposes like joy, exploration, or recreation, this episode focuses on the concept of source-to-seas and how source-to-sea expeditions can be leveraged for conservation. Paddling the entire length of a river allows us to see conservation from a river's perspective. We'll see a river, its landscapes, its communities, and how they change over the course of a river's journey to the sea. I recently worked with today's expert, Danielle Katz, on a source-to-sea expedition called the Grand Salmon, which will become our case study for our episode here today. Our collaboration began with nearly a year of Zoom calls with the Grand Salmon team to plan the logistics of an epic 1,000-mile river and salmon advocacy campaign on the Salmon, Snake, and Columbia Rivers. Halfway through the journey, I drove out to support the Grand Salmon on a month-long section of their campaign. At a campground on the riverbanks of the Deschutes River in northern Oregon, I interviewed Danielle on the frameworks and insider tips that she's gleaned from being involved with nearly 20 source-to-sea expeditions. In this episode, we'll use the Grand Salmon campaign logistics as a case study to discuss what source-to-seas are, a unique contribution to the conservation movement, and how to embark on the logistics of planning a source-to-sea conservation campaign. We'll start the story with Danielle, how she got into source-to-seas and the nonprofit she co-founded to support source-to-sea expeditions as a method of river conservation. My name's Danielle Katz. I'll take you back to 2009. A friend of mine was going to be a guide on a source to see down the length of the Mississippi River. 
which is 2,300 miles and travels from Minnesota all the way down to the Gulf of Mexico. When I first heard about the trip, actually, I got very enraptured and I thought, what an incredible adventure. And they hadn't done a lot of planning. And so I just started being like, how can I help with the planning of this? Like, you need to make this mission into something substantial and to coordinate with other nonprofits for events. And as opportunity would have it, someone dropped out of the trip and this space opened up for me to join. And so then I spent three and a half months kayaking down the Mississippi with two other people and completely changed the way I viewed rivers. In conservation history, if you will, there's this deep-rooted philosophy that if you spend time with the place and you fall in love with the place, that's where the motivation to protect it comes from. Yeah. And so like you're describing these journeys of paddling hundreds, thousands, weeks, months of miles on these rivers and really developing a, a unique connection to them. Yeah. Is that where you're getting at with this soul connection? I think that's, yeah, that's definitely a part of it. You know, you live with the river and its journey. So it becomes a part of you. And as something becomes a part of you, you then want to protect it that much more. Could you explain to us what a source to sea expedition is? A source to sea expedition is generally traveling the length of a body of water in its entirety from the source to its terminus, whether that be the sea or an inland lake. Terminus is a loose term because of the water cycle. It's always continuing. And so you started a nonprofit to continue this work. I'm the co-founder and director of Rivers for Change, a river conservation nonprofit whose mission is to connect people to rivers through source-to-sea adventures, conservation, and education. Once you do one source-to-sea, you just want to do more. How um, many have you been involved with? So I think now I've paddled seven to eight, and I've probably been involved in some capacity of up to 20. One of the big takeaways for me from the Mississippi River was this witnessing of the disconnect that exists between people and the rivers that are in the backyard and one community from the other and sort of that organizational level. So like if there's different organizations working on the same river, there can be collaboration. And this has changed a lot, I think, in the last decade but there just seems to be sort of this disconnection from each of those. And one of the ideas behind Rivers for Change was how can we use adventures of Source to Sea to bring that together and connecting the people directly to their watershed through paddling or cleanups or connecting one community to another bringing kids out together from different parts of a watershed and having them interact or collaborating with organizations that are doing amazing work. Using that adventure as like a catalyst for conservation and connection. It reminds me a lot of just like that eagle eye view. We've been throwing around the catchphrase source to seas as a catalyst for river conservation. Mm -hmm. Would you reflect on that? It goes back to this idea of just adventure, being able to be a catalyst for conservation and how that storytelling of an adventure hooks people and ignites the imagination, right? 
oh, paddling in the evening light and filling, right? That's the adventure part. That's the like gorgeous imagination that, that captures us. And then you say, okay, great. And here's this species of salmon that needs to be saved. Again, adventures are sexy. And you have been highly involved through Rivers for Change in a current campaign, the Grand Salmon. Could you talk a little bit about what the Grand Salmon is and what Rivers for Change has done to support it? The Grand Salmon is a adventure campaign surrounding four women traveling a thousand miles source to sea down the Salmon Snake and Columbia Rivers in a call to action around breaching the four lower Snake River dams and putting a moratorium on the Stibnite Mine, which is threatening the headwaters of the South Fork of the Salmon River. And it's a campaign that's extremely timely because there's legislation that could potentially go through in order to actually breach these four lower Snake River dams, which, as I sort of mentioned earlier, some nonprofits and communities have been and people have been working on really since these dams went in in the 50s and 60s. And we're also making a documentary film about it. In terms of what Rivers for Change has done, because we've been involved with so many source disease in the past with other nonprofits, we really are able to bring that knowledge to the table. I think when two of the paddlers originally thought of the source of sea, they're like, oh, we'll just jump in a kayak and paddle down. And they couldn't quite see just how big it is. And I think to me, the Grand Salmon really is like the ultimate source to sea. And when I think about when Rivers for Change was founded, it's, wow, we're doing the media, we're doing the storytelling, we're reaching the communities, we're doing all these events, you know, we're empowering and inspiring young women as paddlers. Like it has so many components of quote unquote, what an ideal source to see has been sort of in my mind in terms of impact. There's something about viscerally experiencing the change that impacts the soul in a way that I've never seen in any other type of campaign. Jack's Plastic Welding is sponsoring today's episode. Jack's Plastic has several boats on significant discount. These boats are seconds with small blemishes. They have whitewater cat tubes, expedition cat tubes, and a small raft for one person that can get down about 200 CFS. Prices do not include shipping. There is a link in today's show notes taking you direct to these boats. You can also click on Discounted on their homepage and see the boats. And Jack's Plastic has their annual holiday sale happening now. Everything on their website is 10% off until December 25th. And this includes any custom builds that does not include the previously mentioned discounted boats. Jack's Plastic Welding is where I've gotten my cat tubes, my dry bags, and my Paco pad for the past 15 years. You can find them on the web at www.jpwinc.com. Tell them the River Radius sent you. Nissan has a lot of trucks and cars to choose from. Today we're going to look at their newly updated Frontier midsize truck. And in the middle of this episode, we're going to talk about their fully electric vehicles. The Nissan Frontier... This is a midsize four-wheel drive truck. It has a new look for 2022. Check it out. It's pretty sharp looking. This Nissan Frontier comes in two styles. They have the crew cab with four doors and a short or a long bed. Or they have the king cab model with a long bed. What is important to me in a truck is how much weight it can carry and pull. And what I really mean is can the truck get me and a stack of riverboats and my river friends to the boat ramp? Does it drive and feel safe? 
and can it keep those speeds steady when we're driving uphill with all that load? That's my criteria. This new Nissan Frontier has a six-cylinder, 310-horsepower engine with a nine-speed transmission. That's providing a lot of power and a lot of smooth shifting of gears. And this truck can carry about 12 to 1,600 pounds in the truck, and it can pull a trailer with about 6,200 pounds of total weight. In riverboat terms, that is several boats and frames and boxes and coolers, all your dry bags and your water jugs that are full, and yes, even your friends or my friends, maybe all of them. Check out your Denver area Nissan dealers in person and online at www.nissanusa.com. Tell them the River Radius Podcast sent you. Now you've met Danielle, the co-founder of Rivers for Change and the lead on the behind-the-scenes logistics for the recent Grand Salmon campaign. On the riverbanks of the Deschutes, still fully immersed in the Grand Salmon logistics, Danielle breaks down how to begin planning the mission, location, and timing of a source-to-sea expedition. Something that I want to bring into this conversation is the who, what, where, when, why framework. (laughs) And we've touched on the why. We've talked about interconnectedness. We've talked about thinking at a watershed scale and also an on-the-ground scale. I want to talk about what. What are the different types of source to seize? Like, what are the different types of impacts you can have in these projects? Yeah. So, I mean, a source to see, it could be, you know, you walking out your back door and finding the little stream that starts, you know, in the little hill or in the little lake that's on the little mountain right behind and following that down until it reaches, you know, a river. And you could just go out and do that on your own and experience Mm -hmm. that, you know, walking. You know, we're focused a lot on paddling with Rivers for Change, but it doesn't have to be paddling. Um, you don't have to run yourself into the ground suffer fest. You know, to see. Well, there is there is a, a legitimate type two kind of fun, I think, to um, surviving some source to seas, especially the longer ones with the wind and the rain and the portages. Uh, no question. But yeah, you know, I mean, so the scope could be on a very individual level to something like I'm going to go out with my community or I'm going to partner with a local nonprofit and fundraise for them while doing this adventure so that my adventure has more purpose. And then you could do something you know, as large as, as the scale that we're doing right now for the Grand Salmon Source to see, which is, you know, epic on scale in terms of collaboration with 15 different nonprofits, all who have been working so hard on this issue of moving legislation forward to breach the four lower Snake River dams. And so here we are as this giant adventure conservation campaign coming in and really being able to amplify and spotlight the work that has already been done for for decades, you know, the framework already exists, and we're just helping to amplify the voice of what's being done. And so I hear you saying that a source to see it can be an adventure, it can be a campaign, a way to amplify messaging or work that's being done. Are there other types of impacts that source to sees can have? Storytelling, you know, just the opportunity to share the experience of what this river does, the historical impact. You know, I think it's fascinating to go down a river and think about how it used to be and then how it's been changed over time and what it currently looks like and or what the return to more of a historical river might look like. Mm. Are there other types of science that you've been involved with? 
Yeah, we did um, some algae collections looking at the type of algae that were on rocks, which I think was related to um, water quality as well, water temperature. So there's, yeah, there's lots of opportunity to gather to gather data. And so I'm hearing that there's there's many different ways to design a source to see with many different missions and ways of impacting the world, specifically the river conservation world. When you think about what goes into selecting the location, you know, how do you pick a river? What are the considerations? That's a great question. And so much of it depends on timing. So we've been really fortunate, you know, with Rivers for Change that we've sought out rivers that are specifically under threat. So, I mean, going back to the 12 rivers in 2012 campaign, we picked the 12 most impacted rivers in California that were either, you know, some legislation was happening or some big campaign was happening at that same time. And I think that's that sort of followed suit. So in 2014, we helped uh, CNN climate reporter John Sutter do a source to see on the San Joaquin And in 2014, that river was named the most endangered river in America by American rivers. So there was just a tie to, you know, something is happening right now that needs amplification within this river system. And River Radius released an episode about what goes into creating that list with American rivers. And one of the things that they talked about is it's not just the significance of the threat, but also the hope. You know, is there a piece of pending legislation the Grand Salmon is working to breach the lower four Snake River dams, and that campaign has made it onto American Rivers list. Yeah, it's number two mm-hmm. for this year, 2022. But I yeah. see what you mean then, like selecting a location really has to do with um, what else is going on. How long does it take to plan a source to see? You can never start too early. <laughs> You can really never start too early. (laughs) Every time I start planning a new one, I'm like, this time we're going to start earlier. And, you know, the Zoom meetings for like this, this salmon source to see started in June or July of 2021 for a end of April launch of 2022. And that still wasn't early enough. And there's also something about just like looking at a map and picking up your backpack and like going out and 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 heading out, you know. So I think I think a lot depends on the scope and the vision and what you're trying to accomplish. So, you know, are you trying to produce a film? Are you trying to produce lots of media? Do you need a lot of sponsorship and funding or is it self-funded? Who are you partnering with? How many events do you want to have? All of those factors, I think, really play in the planning and um, be prepared for a lot of spreadsheets and (laughs) massive Google drives that quickly become out of control. And are there environmental considerations that would affect timing? Yeah. So a big question around that would be flow. Um, and, you know, just looking at the historical flows of the river and when it actually runs. So there have been times when, you know, we haven't been able to complete a river due to flow or like here on the Grand Salmon, the East Fork, South Fork, South Fork has just been at unsafe levels for our paddlers. So we've decided to wait on doing that and the paddlers will come back at some point um, to finish that. The San Joaquin in 2012 it literally runs dry for a section, but it was drought conditions. And so it took us two years till we were able to go back. And then I walked 30 miles of dry riverbed to sort of make make up that section. But weather, timing of year, river flows are all really big environmental concerns. 
when I picture a source to sea, I think of it being in the river channel the entire time. But when you incorporate the diversions and potentially going underground for a little while, it really makes you think about what counts. Yeah. So, you know, one of the interesting stories about that is one of the rivers that was on our list in 2012 was the Salinas River. But again, it was a really dry year and that river is overallocated and it, it really runs dry. So it only runs during high water years. So, yeah, is walking a riverbed, you know, a source to see? I would say yes, almost for the metaphorical existence of saying at one point there was a river here that traveled source to sea it no longer does and the story around that and amplifying that story has significance the last major topic of today's episode is the who of source to seas source to sea expeditions can take on many forms with varying amounts of planning for a whole spectrum of purposes with Danielle, however, we ramp up the scale and impact of expeditions, with Source to Seas leveraged as a multimedia conservation campaign. We'll talk about the skills needed for a Source to Sea campaign and the rules of a team that make it a reality. Just a minute ago, you mentioned that part of the timing includes thinking about team, but that kind of brings us to our question of who. <laughs> what do you look for in a Source to Sea team? I like to joke that depending on the river, you have to find whitewater paddlers who have the skill to do potentially the headwaters. Although you could technically split the team, which we have definitely done in the past, where you send up, you know, specific headwater class five boaters to do that section. But one of the main challenges is that a lot of whitewater boaters are allergic to flat water. <laughs> and a lot of flatwater boaters don't have the skills to do whitewater. So it is a very unique selection and a very specific type of person that's willing to do both. Another big thing is who can just drop their life because you really, when you're doing a source to see, that is your life. I mean, you are living, breathing 24-7 for however long the trip is, right? Mm -hmm. So I think the shortest source to see we've done is like a three-day down the Napa, you know, but the longest for me was three and a half months. So having having flexibility within your time your ability to support yourself while you're potentially not working for that time period, the skill set, and then just this attitude of also being able to be an articulate spokesperson for the river and being able to get up and talk at events or to reach out to partners or sponsors and really, really collaborate and, and be okay with doing a lot of legwork that happens beforehand. Are there anything, any universal success trait that a potential paddler should have or work on building? Grit. <laughs> That's the word that comes to mind. I think with any, again, it totally depends on the expedition, but like being okay, not showering for days on end and being okay, being removed from family, friends, life. And enthusiasm, you know, I think also just a, a really positive spirit, like on the toughest of days when the wind is blasting you or you're paddling through a hailstorm and, you know, you have 20 miles to make to get across this reservoir, 
do you have coping mechanisms that can support you? You know, maybe it's just eating large amounts of jelly beans or something, but like, (laughs) you know, emotional support systems (laughs) or, you know, rocking out to certain music. But, you know, how are you able to continue to to push through? Also, when you're exhausted, because some of these can be very, very taxing. I would, you know, recommend making sure that you've camped out for five days consecutively. I mean, you can learn, you can learn a lot on a trip on a source to see and depending on how long it is. But knowing some of those basic camping skills of like, oh, right, how do I use a stove? (laughs) Right? That's important. There's a huge learning curve for a trip depending on its length right and it definitely like scales up the longer you go but there's a basic entry level where you do need to know a few things or have someone in your boat in your team who really knows and can take the lead as you learn and sort of build your skill set could i dive into your mind for a second when you're a beginner paddler like rapid fire what are all the questions that you have so many questions i mean like how do i pack a boat where do i get my water how do i make my food how do i stay upright in a loaded boat how do i paddle into the wind where do i use my rudder do i put things on top of my boat or inside my boat and do i pack my food in this bag or that bag or how do I maintain that the food doesn't go bad paddling? I mean, what side of the river should I paddle on? If a barge is coming towards me, you know, what side of the barge am I supposed to be on? Where's the actual waterway? Where's, you know, the safety zone? Who has the right of way on the river? Like there's tons of portages often on a source to see. So what is the portage route? Is there a portage route? How do I portage? Would it be really helpful if I have wheels to help me portage? Um, Wheels either being like a wheelsy to put your kayak on and wheel around, or like, do I need to call in a community member nearby to help me get around this dam because there are no portage routes? Those are very important questions that someone in your team needs to take the lead on and know about. Jack's Plastic Welding has been hand-building boats, Paco pads, and dry bags in the United States since last century. Jack's Plastic has several boats on extra-large discount. These boats are seconds with small blemishes. They have whitewater cat tubes, expedition cat tubes, and a small raft for one person that can get down about 200 CFS. Prices do not include shipping. There is a link in today's show notes taking you direct to these boats. You can also click on Discounted on their homepage and see the boats. Jack's Plastic also is hosting their annual holiday sale. Everything on their website is 10% off until December 25th, and this includes any custom builds. That 10% does not include the previously mentioned discounted boats. You can find them on the web at www.jpwinc.com. Tell them the River Radius sent you. Nissan has been building fully electric vehicles for 12 years and has over 5 billion miles on this fleet as a testament to their efficacy. That is billion with a B. Nissan has two electric vehicles to choose from. That is the Leaf and the new Aria. Both of these electric vehicles can handle most day runs on the river. You can put your friends in the car with you. You can have your boats loaded on the roof or in the hatch. You can throw a bike on a bike rack and run your own shuttle. The Nissan LEAF for 2022 has a range between 150 and 225 miles. This is a smaller car with four doors and a hatchback. You can easily add a roof rack system. 
You can also fold the seats down for inside cargo space. The second vehicle from Nissan is the new Aria. This will be available in the fall of 2022 and you can reserve this car now. This is a slick looking four-door SUV, has lots of comfortable features and a range up to 300 miles and they even have an all-wheel drive model. Again, you can reserve that Nissan Aria now. Check out your Denver area Nissan dealers in person and online at www.nissanusa.com. Tell them the River Radius Podcast sent you. We've talked a little bit about team and all of the different hats that anyone involved in the Source to See can take on. Would you give me an overview of some of the types of like categories for the roles? It breaks down into a lot of how you are planning your trip in terms of having on-land support and or just on-water support. So I think it's really helpful to think of some of the categories in those two areas and then how some of those roles cross over regardless of whether or not you're on the water or on land. For on water, it's really helpful you know, like with any expedition to have your trip leader, right? Someone who is the go-to person for what's happening. Um, They're the default decision maker. That's not to say the team isn't involved with, you know, mapping and safety decisions, but they are like the go-to person figuring out the route for the day. Where are we going to camp? They sort of present, say, a draft schedule, so to speak. Early on, you can say, okay, I think we can get to these miles. Then let's build in like a restock day. It's like a laundry shower food shopping day, but mapping out, okay, this is, or this is where we need to refill water. Mm -hmm. If you're on a river where you don't feel safe filtering the water, which definitely happens on some of these bigger rivers. So where is that marina where I can stop? Where are the marinas I can stop and get ice cream? (laughs) Very important route planning. (laughs) And then you have someone who's a safety coordinator. This should be the person with the highest level of first aid training. That person can coordinate directly with onshore support if there were an emergency and having a good risk management plan in place on really big water where the group might get spread out, sort of having pods and or having check-ins, you know, making sure that if one paddler is a faster paddler, they're stopping every hour and waiting for the rest of the group to catch up. Um, just putting little safety things in like that. Mm. And where do you swift water rescue and in reach familiarity fall into that? Yeah, I mean, I would say definitely having swift water rescue training is essential and, and really all team members who are going to be on the water should have swift water training because you're as, as strong as your team and you want to be able to be rescued comfortably by any member of the team at any point. But a basic understanding of swift water rescue techniques based on the craft you're using as well. What are some of the other on-water tasks? Making sure that permits are in order, right? A lot of these rivers... As more and more people learn about them and recreate them, it's a beautiful thing, but it can be actually really difficult to get permits. So planning far enough ahead that you can get permits or if there's permits that you can get day of as you go along, you know, obviously making sure that you're following all those rules and regulations. I mean, we just we just came across a funny one 
were camped at the confluence of the Deschutes and the Columbia. And there's like a day use Deschutes permit that's a dollar. And, you know, the ranger was super nice and came up and was like, did you know that you're recreating on the Deschutes now? And we're like, well, actually, we're paddling down the Columbia, but, you know, we can pay you a dollar. So, Danielle, I know that there's a spreadsheet that outlines a number of rules and responsibilities. And I'm looking at it now. It's color coded. And I see these different categories. So we've got outreach and publicity. How would you describe that? So I would describe that as all-encompassing of everything from community outreach to media outreach to social media to the event coordination that might be happening. So there's a lot of different roles within that larger category. And this is where the roles and responsibilities of having one person only do it gets really tricky and sort of overwhelming. So also based on who has connections where. And I highly recommend, especially in this day and age with social media, is having a support team on land that's at least at a computer and can help facilitate some of the social media updates because it really does then become all about sharing your story. So having that ability to do that both from the water and then to the on land team. And then like a different kind of subcategory of that is managing events and volunteers, Hmm. kind of that like in-person component of land engagement. What are some of the roles that uh, people may play on the water or on land? There's a lot to do when managing volunteers and events. A lot just depends on the capacity of the on-water team. Again, it's really helpful to have the off-water support to check in regularly because you are you're you're managing people and and people need you know to be checked in on. And that constant like check-in is really hard when you're actually in the thick of an expedition. Mm. And so this is where that team comes up again, just having different. different strengths but also maybe different degrees of reception and accessibility yeah exactly and definitely forewarning you know partners and volunteers you know that even even the support team is going to go potentially in and out of service and so it's you know there's a lot of patience I think for all involved in terms of coordination and that willingness and understanding that Things are going to change a lot, you know, with the source to see one of the most challenging things is, especially if you're planning events along the way um, in a campaign like the Salmon Source to See is, you know, we set the schedule three months ahead and then fine-tuned it and fine-tuned it into this day-by-day thing. But then it's a super high water year, right? Things change. And so saying, oh my God, we got to be at this place at this time. You know, I think if they had just been doing a source to see, they would have moved a lot differently than if there had been all these events. But the events are are a critical part of, you know, this source to see campaign. So just making sure that partners understand that rivers are moving, changing things uh, that we really don't have control over. And I see on here, too, there's a a category designated to sponsorships and partners. Like, I'm seeing words like sponsorship, outreach liaison, partnership liaison, campaign organizer liaison, um, and even a bit of grant writing. When I read those, I would anticipate that that happens at a different time, like perhaps before the expedition. How does that break down? Yeah. So sponsorship is key, and you can never start too early on that. Hmm. 
that goes back to the conversation around, you know, getting your branding and your messaging together and your mission of your trip articulated as early as possible within the planning scheme because sponsors are going to want to see a pitch deck. They're going to want to see what you're going to, what the outcome of the trip is going to be, even though you potentially don't know. So getting all that packaged into a website or a sponsorship pitch deck and then being able to get those out before the sponsor's funding year. And often, unfortunately, it just happens too late and the sponsors are saying, oh, we're out of money, you know, already this year. We already allocated. You should have contacted us six months ago. (laughs) So you can never start too early, you know, even a year before to give a heads up. If you if you know in a couple years you're going to do something to start building those relationships and saying, hey, I have this idea. It's still in development. I would love to partner with you. This is what we're looking like. You know, when would you like to receive these materials? Mm. That's when you're super on your game. I also just working backwards, I'm hearing you say things like pitch deck and explaining your project, which means even further backwards, you have to know what it is that you're trying to do. You have to have a project that's already designed, a timeline that's already established, branding, a website, clout. In order to even begin the outreach process of funding or partnership building, sponsorship building. And so that's months of like internal design work. Exactly. Exactly. And that's where those early meetings, you know, really happen. And, you know, those discussions of, okay, what are we doing? What do we want to accomplish? And then just fine tuning the language around that. Um, But again, the sooner you can get something, I mean, you're going to go through six different drafts of a pitch deck and your website's going to constantly get updated and you're going to go, oh, actually, this is tweaked a little bit. But I think establishing that baseline is really critical for both sponsors, you know, financial support and partnerships. It ties into a conversation around budget Mm -hmm. on the river and off the river. What are some rules around managing finances? Yeah, it's really challenging. It's really hard to foresee budget and expenses, but the more you can sort of break down, okay, I think, you know, food's going to cost this. I think transport's going to cost this. I think insurance is going to cost this is three big, big sort of headers. You know, and you can break down, we think food per person per day is going to be X, Y, Z while on the river and off the river. Obviously, it's probably going to be more because you're going to be eating out versus making your own meals. Finding food sponsorship is really helpful. But then monitoring the budget, and this is, it's really hard to do while you're on the trip. Receipt management, I mean, thank God for Google Drive, you know, folders and being able to, you know, take pictures of receipts on the road. But some people are like, here's my wad of receipts that are slightly damp and have been traveling with me for two months. And I got to figure it out, you know, at the end of the trip. When you're calculating rough estimates, Mm -hmm. like you mentioned that you have kind of a quota for what you would expect a day of food to cost. What's your range? What are you typically looking at? You know, originally $15 per day per person while on the river, but that's also based on more on group meals. So a lot depends too on if you're doing individual meals versus group meals. And if you're buying in bulk, you know, or you're doing dehydrated meals. Uh, So it can really, really vary. Are there some other big ticket items that like if you're thinking about budgeting, you should be having on your radar? 
I mean, transportation, if you don't get your craft sponsored, you know, the investment in your craft, you know, and some gear essentials of like, what boat are you going to be using? Do you know someone who can, who you can borrow a sea kayak or a whitewater boat or a canoe from to do your trip? Do you have an estimate of how many dry bags this group has gone through? Oh, I do not. It's been a lot. If you were to like throw out a number. Oh my God. I would say each paddler probably has 10 to 15 dry bags. Different sizes, different weights. You know, sort of changes a little bit. What you can put in a whitewater boat is different than what you can put in a sea kayak. Mm. So a lot of gear, a lot of bags. But you can also do it simply. Like you can just be like, okay, here are my, you know, however many bags. I still use some of my bags from my Mississippi trip in 2009. Some of them aren't quite as waterproof anymore, but they're still good stuff sacks. (laughs) I want to loop back to um, talking about budget because something I realized that we've kind of discussed in other moments has been that every source to see has a different level of land support. Like when it comes to budget, like you did mention like transport costs. In absence of that, you're also thinking about like how do you walk to grocery stores? Mm -hmm. And that's a whole other role is the person that's coordinating how to get to the human needs yes. that the team has. Yeah. One of the beautiful things about Source to See is this connecting with strangers and relying on them for help and, and you know, driving up and someone being like, hey, do you know where the laundromat is? Can you give me a ride to the laundromat? Like, I'm sorry, I smell really bad. <laughs> right. And obviously that's going to change too with, you know, as we emerge from a pandemic. I think it just it shows how variable a budget can be. At the basis, right, a, a source to see doesn't have to be an expensive campaign if you're not trying to, you know, do all this public outreach. If you're just going out to do a little source to see on your own, you're just covering the cost of your expenses and the food that you would be purchasing anyways, you know, and you don't necessarily have rent out on the on the river, although there are some campsites that are nice to pay for every once in a while and get a hot shower. <laughs> Luxury. (laughs) Luxury. Those hot showers. And I think, you know, I think in this day and age, you're seeing more and more expedition campaigns with larger budgets because there is such a media component and Mm. the filmmaking aspect really increases the cost of doing something like this. So, I mean, you think of Hollywood and how much money goes into making those films. And we're talking about like dirtbag documentaries, but post-production you know, hiring people to edit, to direct, to film, you know, that really, that cost really adds up. And on the team, there's, the team is interested in making a documentary. Uh, What are some of the on-water roles that people have taken on in order to complete this project? You're really going to have a director of photography. You're going to have, you know, second camera. You're going to have people who are getting B-roll footage, the director, the producer, the writer. What is the story that you want to tell? And I think a lot of times with these trips, you go in with a vision of one story and then other things happen. And so how can you have, you know, an outline of what you're moving towards so that you're not shooting all the time and end up with hours and hours of footage, which you still will. But how can you yeah, be more selective in your shots? 
And are there other on the water, like during the journey, roles or responsibilities that a group has to keep in mind? I think another thing, actually, this role isn't on any of the spreadsheets, but I would highly suggest that someone has some sort of massage background or physical <laughs> therapy background, because all I can say is that it is your body is going to get worked and being able to have someone help put you back together or keep you moving forward is actually essential. Like, I mean, you're, you're undertaking a huge athletic endeavor. And I would say, you know, part of the self-care for yourself on these trips, you know, are you stretching in the morning before you mm -hmm. get in your boat? Are you taking the time? You know, so often it's like, we got to get on the water. We got in the water. Can you take that 10 minutes to stretch in the morning? Can you take that 10 minutes to roll out on a lacrosse ball or a tennis ball at the end of the night and work out all those kinks because it will add up over time. And then, yeah, if you have if you have a therapist, a massage therapist, you know, that it, it just benefits the trip. If you have more on water roles, definitely loop me back around. But yeah. I'm thinking, too, like we've talked a little bit about the um, before trip roles. Yes. You know, that branding, website content, designing what this project is, reaching out to sponsors and partners and communities. Then there's the on water tasks, you know, the navigation, the food planning, the laundromat navigation and safety safety communications what are the roles involved in wrapping up an expedition like this yeah it's projects like this you're like i made it to the sea i'm over and then you're like oh no now i need to like thank all these incredible people who made this happen right which is actually a joyful thing to think back and be like oh my god three months ago we stayed with so-and-so like Let's write them a note and thank them or, um, you know, definitely fulfilling all of your sponsorship deliverables. Um, if you're planning a film, you're then going to start going into the post-production, which is a full on, you know, expedition in itself. And, you know, and then really, I think also taking the time to debrief the trip and, and learn like what what worked for this? What didn't work? If I were to do this again, what would I do differently? Um, but really coming up to with a plan actually around communications and you've built this entire community who now love and support and are invested in you as individuals as well as the campaigns. So how are you going to stay in touch with them? How are you going to keep them updated both on your like not necessarily your personal life, but like if you say like, oh, I'm now this not celebrity, but, you know, I'm, I'm a public figure now. You know, how do I update people who want to know what I'm involved with or what my next step is or where this campaign is going? So who's responsible for keeping that up to date? I've seen a lot of trips end and then it just they go silent. Too many trips, I think, fall off the grid and people are like, what happened to you? Well, it's interesting like when you think about a source to see, you know, it's like one thing to be like, yes, source to see is a method of change making. But so much of that is the behind the scenes computer work. It's a lot of computer work and a lot of support, you know, behind the scenes, a lot of support that I think a lot of people don't see and fully understand just how much. Mm. I just wish there was like a, a central hub. Well, funny you should say that. One of the 
one of the visions Rivers for Change would love to implement at some point is sort of this larger source to see network where people could connect and over these trips that were either have already done and they can share beta over them or potentially collaborate on future campaigns. If there are others that are interested in getting involved with Source to Seize, what kind of resources do Rivers for Change provide? Yeah, so right now we have a very small grant program, which opens up in the fall. Um, so you can always submit an application for that. And then we are in the process of creating sort of a training manual guidance playbook, so to speak, on how to do source to seize and the different things um, that are involved with that. And then this idea of creating a source to see network um, to just connect more people through the magic of source to seize. Thank you, Danielle, for making the time to talk to us about all of the ins and outs of Source to Seas and this profound sense of connection and joy you have with rivers. We'll see you downstream. See you downstream. Paddles up. A spreadsheet size thank you goes out to Danielle for taking the time to share her expertise on planning Source to Sea expeditions. Further thanks goes out to the Grand Salmon team for an inspirational method of river conservation. For more information on Rivers for Change, you can find the website linked below in the show notes. Thanks so much for joining the River Radius. We have two sponsors today. First is the Denver and Front Range of Colorado Nissan dealerships. Find them on the web at www.nissanusa.com and also on Instagram. You can find a dealer locator link on that website. And our second sponsor is Jack's Plastic Welding. You can find them on the web at www.jpwinc.com. Dot com And in our show notes today is a direct link to their discounted boats. As Samara told you, you can find websites and Instagram links for Rivers for Change and the Grand Salmon Source to Sea that was talked about in today's show notes. A Source to Sea size thank you goes out to Samara Rosen for bringing us today's episode. Our social media hotshot is Samantha Sice. All music is composed and performed by Gene Reiniger. Be in touch anytime. Hello at theriverradius.com. Thanks so much for joining the River Radius. Deep dive into my mind. Don't know that people want to do it, but welcome to my mind. Again, adventures are sexy. I like to battle on a river and camp on its banks. <laughs>